0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, January 16th. I'm Jarrett Stepman.
1: And I'm Kate Trinko. The U.S. and China have a new deal, but is it good for Americans? The Heritage Foundation's Riley Walters joins us to discuss what you need to know about the deal. We'll also talk to Thalia Rampersad about the hit new movie, 1917. She's seen it, and we'll hear whether she gives it a thumbs up or a thumbs down.
0: Don't forget... If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news.
1: Well, the House has finally sent over the impeachment articles to the Senate, voting largely along party lines on Wednesday. One Democrat, Representative Colin Peterson of Minnesota, broke with his party and voted against sending over the impeachment articles. In remarks on the House floor Wednesday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi discussed the impeachment
2: via CBS. So we have a situation that is very sad. Don't talk to me about my timing. For a long time, I resisted the calls from across the country for impeachment of the president, for obvious violations of the Constitution that he had committed. But recognizing the divisiveness of impeachment, I held back. Frankly, I said, this president isn't worth it. But when he acted the way he did in relationship to withholding funds from Ukraine in return for a benefit to him that was personal and political, He crossed a threshold. He gave us no choice. He gave us no choice.
0: House Speaker Pelosi announced Wednesday the seven impeachment managers who make the case to convict President Donald Trump in a Senate impeachment trial. The managers act as prosecutors in the impeachment trial, but the Senate decides how it is run. The list of managers includes Representative Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who is selected as the lead manager and has been one of the leading advocates of impeachment. It also included Representatives Jerry Nadler and Akeem Jeffries of New York and Zoe Lofgren of California. All seven of the managers are Democrats.
1: Representative Jerry Nadler was a pivotal figure in the impeachment process due to his role as chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Now, as Jarrett mentioned, he's one of the impeachment managers, and he was quick to put the kibosh on Hunter Biden appearing as a witness in the Senate trial via ABC Here's what Nadler had to say.
2: In any trial, you call witnesses who have information about the allegations, about the charges. The allegations, for which is a mountain of evidence, are that the president betrayed his country by trying to extort Ukraine by withholding $391 million in military aid that Congress had voted in order to get Ukraine to announce an investigation of a domestic political opponent, that's the allegation. Any witness who has information about whether that is true or not true is a relevant witness. Anybody like Hunter Biden who has no information about any of that is not a relevant witness. Any trial judge in this country would rule such a witness as irrelevant and inadmissible. someone is accused of robbing a bank, witnesses who say we saw him run into the bank, we saw him someplace else, are relevant. A witness who says he uh, committed forgery on, a, on some other document is not relevant to the bank robbery charge. That's the distinction.
0: On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that the Senate would not follow the House's path on impeachment and called it a, quote, kind of anti-democratic recall measure. McConnell specifically criticized the process by which the House conducted its impeachment inquiry.
2: Speaker Pelosi and the House have taken our nation down a dangerous road. If the Senate blesses this unprecedented and dangerous House process by agreeing that an incomplete case and a subjective basis are enough to impeach a president, we will almost guarantee the impeachment of every future president Of either party when the House doesn't like that person.
0: It will take 67 Senate votes to convict President Trump in the impeachment trial and remove him from office.
1: More political turmoil in Russia, where Vladimir Putin appears to be trying to find a way to remain in power after 2024. After Putin proposed changes to Russia's governance, current Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev said he was leaving and the entire cabinet was as well. Putin quickly announced the new prime minister, Mikhail Mishustin, a government official who worked on taxes. Next up, we'll have my interview with Riley Walters to discuss the trade deal. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on heritage.org today. On Wednesday, President Donald Trump signed a new trade deal with China. Here's part of what Trump had to say via ABC News.
2: Today, we take a momentous step, one that has never been taken before with China, toward a future of fair and reciprocal trade as we sign phase one of the historic trade deal between the United States and China. Together, we are righting the wrongs of the past and delivering a future of economic justice and security for American workers, farmers and families.
1: So... Joining me to discuss this deal today is Riley Walters, a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation who focuses on Asia's economy and technology. Riley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. So before we get into the new trade deal, I actually want to roll back the clock a little bit. We've seen a lot of tension between President Trump and China over trade during his presidency. How intense have the negotiations and the fights been? And does that color how we should look at this new deal?
3: I think if you look at the last uh, couple years of negotiations between uh, Washington and Beijing um you see a lot of back and forth there were certainly some times when it seemed like negotiations were going well uh, both sides seemed to have been making progress but there were clearly some times where things fell out of line and so during those you know turbulent times you'd see escalatory efforts on both sides uh by imposing new tariffs and, and such like that uh, last year, I think uh, I think it was last year, and around May, we saw probably the the biggest uh, dispute between the two sides, and it almost seemed like negotiations fell apart completely, like uh, as a, almost as if they weren't going to go anywhere from there. So this is, I think, what we saw today is a complete one hundred and eighty. Uh, we're we're definitely, I mean, we have a deal now, uh, right? And so this, I think, marks the point where we sort of return to some sort of level of normalcy between the United States and China on economic and trade issues. And so uh, I think it's good. Um, obviously, this is just phase one of a of, of two-phase deal. Uh, and so over the next year, we should hopefully see a, a lot more progress.
1: Okay, so our listeners won't know this, but when Riley came to the studio, he had a huge sheath of papers with all the details. So obviously this trade deal is very complicated. But could you break down for us what are some of the highlights and key things that people should know about the trade deal?
3: So uh you know it's it's uh, almost a hundred page document. Um it, it gets into some very technical uh trade uh and legalese uh issues. Um it touches on a variety of issues. I mean there are there are roughly eight chapters in this text, uh going and touching on everything from the protection of intellectual property and trade secrets, uh reducing uh technology transfers from American companies to Chinese entities. Uh, it touches on exchange rates and increase in trade efforts. Uh, it touches on a whole variety of things. And so uh, throughout the document, there are new metrics, you know, uh, you know uh, dates by which, you know, uh, certain government officials need to have certain reports. There are certain trade measures. Uh, for example, China needs to purchase over the next two years an additional $200 billion worth of a variety of American goods. Um, and of course, there are communications that are set up uh, dialogues that are making sure that this agreement goes into force that every part of the agreement is uh disputable to some uh, extent uh and of course you know uh, this has been agreed to on on both sides so um what is in this document right now uh, is the new policy uh you know I, i would actually say this is this is probably the most comprehensive trade agreement we've had with uh, China since their joining of the WTO twenty years ago. so this is this is pretty significant,
1: so you mentioned that the deal requires China to buy two hundred billion um, dollars worth of additional goods over the next couple of years. I am not an expert on trade deals. <laughs> is it normal for a deal to include this kind of mandatory buy with it? And what do you think about this provision?
3: Uh, this is not normal. Um, (laughs) this is, this is certainly something, uh, new generally. Um, so what, what the agreement, you know, what, what, I think this is actually probably one of the few things that's covered regularly in the news is, is this 200 billion in additional purchases by China over the next two years. Um, so what they're supposed to do is, uh, it's buy two hundred billion in addition to what they bought in two hundred in two thousand seventeen, which was roughly one hundred ninety billion worth of goods and services from the United States. So, for the rest of this year and all of next year, they need to buy roughly three hundred ninety billion worth of goods and services, and those break down by industries, manufactured goods, uh, agricultural, energy, et cetera, but. Uh, again this is this is not normal <laughs> this is this is not something you usually find in trade agreements because trade agreements are usually about removing barriers um, it's about removing uh, the tariffs or taxes on imports that countries maintain it's about removing regulatory barriers so um, uh, specific uh, for example um, uh, biochemical restrictions or or uh, chemical or uh, scientific restrictions on you know agricultural products uh, removing those so that the the goods that we trade are are free from restriction this is different this this sets up a sort of a mandatory you must buy and there are going to be a lot of questions about how china does this who who in china is actually going to start buying these goods right is it through state owned enterprises is it you know, quote unquote, private Chinese companies at the behest of the Chinese government. Um, and of course, the the question of whether the United States can actually provide these goods. Um, there's going to be a lot of, I think, questions about just the way that this is actually implemented.
1: The deal reduced some tariffs. It also eliminated some other potential tariffs that could have been coming down the pipeline. Overall, um, did you think what the deal did for tariffs made sense or didn't? And if so, Why?
3: As a part of this deal, there will be some tariffs that remain in place by this administration. Uh, They are going to keep a 25 percent additional tariff or import tax on roughly 250 billion worth of goods and a 7.5 tariff tax uh, on roughly 120 billion worth of imports from China. So all those will roughly remain. Um, The president said he's, he's more than willing to get rid of those as part of a phase two deal. We don't know when the phase two deal could happen. Uh, some suggest 10 months. It could be longer, uh, especially things could change if the election outcome changes. Um, and so those will remain in place for at least the next year or so. Um, there's been no reports about how China will be uh, decreasing its import taxes. Um, obviously, they too have been implementing their own tariffs over the last couple of years in retaliation to the United States. But um, that that's going to be, I think, what to expect for the lease the next year. Okay.
1: So how did this deal address intellectual property concerns at all? Obviously, there's been a lot of concern that China is taking intellectual property from U.S. companies. Does this address that?
3: It does. Um, so the first two chapters uh, you know, are 21 pages long. They address intellectual property protection or, or trade secret protections um, and technology transfer. Basically, uh, not to get too much into detail, but, uh, basically it says China will protect these intellectual property, uh, American intellectual property, our trade secrets. Um, the things that actually make, you know, <laughs> uh, companies profitable and, and want to invest and in, and, uh, do business. Um, and they won't require, uh, American companies or entities to transfer their sensitive technology to Chinese entities, uh, for for any reason. Sometimes in in China, um, you hear stories of American companies who want to get into China. They are by law sometimes required to enter into a joint venture with a Chinese company. And then the Chinese company says, well, if you want to make the deal, we need to have access to your intellectual property. And so that's supposed to no longer happen. Um, We will see, of course, over the next uh, year or so, whether that's true or not. Uh, And there's some, some other interesting changes in how American companies can sort of fight their legal case in China when they feel that their intellectual property has been stolen. So some real interesting stuff there. Uh, again, um, it, it, we'll, we'll have to see whether it actually produces anything of substance, but I think on paper at least it's it's a, a positive step.
1: So I know you don't have a crystal ball to see America's economic future, mm-hmm. but how would you guess this deal would or wouldn't affect the U.S. economy? Um, you know, I think it
3: one of the couple of things that are a drag on the us economy right now not not of course pushing us into recession i mean there's a lot of positive economic uh, activities that the trump administration has 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 helped with over the last couple of years but a couple of the drags are you know the fact that tariffs will be remaining on uh, over 300 billion worth of goods um the the silver lining is that you know us trade with china only makes up roughly 3% of our gdp so it's not it's not uh, that significant i mean it, it is you know hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods the trump administration has collected uh, f- roughly 43 billion in new taxes from americans who import from china um so that is a cost but i think one of the 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 biggest gains from this and it's going to be harder to actually quantify is the uncertainty it removes? I think. I think the trade deal today brings back a lot of certainty. Um, I think anyone who thought the Trump administration's goal is to decouple from China, I think. I think with this deal, I think that idea is dead. Right. This this deal is building a new U.S.-China economic relationship. I think for a, a good, you know, for a good cause too. Um, and so, this will bring a lot of certainty back to our economic relationship.
1: And how do you think it might affect China's economy?
3: Uh, again, same way. I think uh, perhaps uh, marginally, uh, a positive marginal. Um, they themselves have a lot of domestic issues that they need to take care of. Um, uh, looking forward uh, toward the way that uh, debt is accumulating in China, the way that their demographics are shaping up, uh, the fact that you know, as a part of phase two, we're going to have to negotiate a lot of sensitive issues. Um, like state-owned enterprises uh, and the support that they get from the government um, and how those not just affect the U.S. economy, but how they affect negatively affect the Chinese economy as well.
1: Okay. Riley Walters, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
3: It's because of
0: support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains
3: and SCOTUS 101.
0: And you can help us keep it going by visiting www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your
3: tax-deductible gift.
0: We are now joined by Talia Rampersad, who is a producer for the Daily Signal podcast, to talk about the new movie, 1917, which is now in theaters. Thank you, Talia, for joining
4: us. Glad to be here.
0: Well, first of all, Talia, I mean, before, of course, we give the final... Thumbs up, thumbs down of this movie, which you're going to give at the end of the segment. Uh, Talk to us about the movie. You know, what parts did you like? Uh, What did you think of this movie? Which, of course, is based very much around the Western Front in World War I British soldiers.
4: Yeah, so I just want to say I'm glad you're here, Jarrett, because I am in no way, shape or form a history savant. So I went into this film really not knowing what the storyline was going to be. That's kind of my favorite thing to do, though, when I go to the movies, not truly understanding what the story is and kind of being surprised by it. So I went in just solely on all of the, the hot takes and all of the um, critics saying this was a really great film and everyone should go see it. Um, so I went in kind of with that perspective and... Cinematically I was not disappointed. The cinematography in this film is stunning. Sam Mendez is director, producer and writer on this movie and he does an incredible job with just the visuals alone. I mean, sound design is also incredible, but what you're watching is a one-shot film. And so what it is, it's it's very immersive when you're when you're watching it, especially on a big screen in IMAX, I would recommend. Um, So you're really in the trenches with these guys and you're kind of going through almost all of the motions that they would, the emotions as well, um, that they go through throughout the course of this film. So very interesting. It is definitely a journey. But in terms of the story itself, I don't know. I was almost kind of let down by the story just Mm -hmm. because it was very simplistic in what the objective was. Was for these guys. So if you haven't seen it yet, basically what it is is these two men are tasked with the objective of sending a message to, I believe it's a commander of sorts, um, to Um, Tell them to pull back on a a battle that they're going to engage in um, because it's a trap by the opposing forces. So that's kind of the scene that's been set for you in the beginning. um, And then you just follow these guys through the film and um, the big mission that they've been tasked with.
0: It really is interesting. Of course, this comes... Out kind of on the heels of a, a documentary that came out in 2019, They Shall Not Grow Old, which is this – honestly, is phenomenal documentary by, by Peter Jackson where they used actual footage from World War I, uh, British soldiers during that time, and then, of course, cleaned them up for a modern audience – the the documentary did phenomenally well, and I think that was kind of the inspiration for this. It's interesting to see World War One kind of get its own take. I'd say actually the storyline of this, I mean, if if you have seen Saving Private Ryan, is somewhat derivative of Saving Private Ryan. I, I would say it's probably one of the best movies since that time. The The story is... I, I guess you could say somewhat simplistic uh, from my perspective, but there was an actual story. I mean, you do follow uh, you know, a set of characters to this. I, I would say quite different in many ways from another movie that came out a few years ago, Dunkirk, which was another, of course, British, that one was a World War II movie that really you didn't follow. I mean, there were characters in that movie, but there wasn't a whole lot of development. The cinematography was phenomenal but you're kind of left without an actual storyline i think that's something that i actually appreciate about this movie it wasn't the most elaborate story it wasn't necessarily the best but i think it got the job done in this movie and allowed you to engage with these characters emotionally
4: Yeah, absolutely. And what did you think about the visuals of the film? Because that's kind of what it's both story as well as, okay, like, take a look at this film because it's stunning. What did you think about that?
0: I I thought they were excellent. In some ways, they were almost reminiscent of Lord of the Rings and that kind of thing. There are some scenes, especially some night scenes, incredible doing this in one shot. Uh, that are very evocative, uh, very powerful, especially for uh, what is a war movie. I mean, you're dealing with life and death and violence. And I think I think one of my favorite scenes of the movie, not to give away too much, uh, has the soldiers singing Wayfaring Stranger, which is a very classic. Interesting to see it in a movie about British soldiers, a very classic 19th century American Folk song I think was very beautifully done and how they created that scene and made an emotional impact of what these men were really going through on these battlefields because there's something that anybody who's spent time to study World War One uh, are some of the most horrifying in human history. I mean, truly if there's there's a battlefield anywhere at any time you don't want to be on, it's in the trenches in World War 1. I. I do think the movie uh, conveyed some of the horror, some of the horror of going through these trenches, going through no man's land uh, and what these people really experienced, which I think is what brings kind of the power in this movie. It, it is a very uh the the visuals in this movie are very impactful uh, when you see them.
4: Yeah, definitely. So, like, going back to that that one-shot technique that Sam Mendes uses, it is very immersive. And like you mentioned, as I was watching the film, I'm sitting there thinking, man, like, I did not want to be a soldier back then. Like, the things that they went through and having now a perspective like, of modern warfare, like, I understand it as, like, that time, that period of time was almost a transition period from you know, that type of warfare to modern warfare. And they were going through it and it was painful to watch, um, let alone even think about being involved in. And so, yeah, that part of the film and that aspect of the film really, I think, came through on screen, um, which I loved. But there were some portions of it where I was like, you know, I'm not sure if the practicality of this or this actually happening um, would really play out this way in history. And, I am gonna I am gonna give a spoiler alert. This there's a spoiler alert coming. <laughs> um, I want to get your take on the scene of pretty pivotal scene of the, one of the main actors dying. What did you think about that?
0: It, it was a little bit ridiculous in how they set it up. I mean, obviously the emotional impact of one of the one of the characters dying is very intense in how they did. And of course, it sets up one of the ca- characters to kind of have this kind of heroic, I guess you could say, uh, finish. Again, there's a kind of Saving Private Ryan. There's a story of two brothers others and things like this and I, I do think that the scene was set up in, in a rather ridiculous way but it, it did show uh kind of look a uh, war is how ugly war is it's a, a scene in which uh, you know one man was trying to help an enemy in, in the situation and ultimately you know paid the ultimate price for that I, I think that shows the kind of ugliness of war that while the scene itself was maybe a little bit a little bit over the top and how it was conducted it does show the kind of Decisions people have to make sometimes on a battlefield uh, when, you know, look, a lot of times moral clarity really isn't there and uh, you want to do the right thing and you end up paying this kind of price. And and understanding that the people who ultimately go out and fight our wars are people who – young people 18, 19 years old. These are – in many ways you look at them, they're they're young boys making these decisions uh, and showing that, you know, in these incredible conditions that they do make those decisions. People act – Sometimes heroically, uh, in many cases, and you know what it takes to get to that point through all this horror. So I do, yeah. Not not every part of this movie to me was perfect, but it was a very good war story, and certainly one of the better ones I've seen in recent years. So, Thalia, would you ultimately give this movie a thumbs up or a thumbs down?
4: So, in terms of, I can't grade it all in one fail swoop. I think in terms of cinematography, thumbs up for sure. In terms of story structure. And maybe more of my like true engagement, I would give it almost a. Not a thumbs down, but not a thumbs up, kind of in the middle. So a sideways
0: thumb. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's exactly. A clivering what, yeah, sideways yeah, thumb. <laughs>
4: exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I definitely think the critics would disagree with me on that because it has racked up 10 um, Oscar nominations. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, we'll see what happens there. Everyone's saying that it is going to win Best Picture. We don't know yet. Um, but I really think Sam Mendes is in the top four Best Director.
0: Yeah, definitely. And if, if I can, one more thing I can add is I do hope there are mo- more movies like this in the future one way or another. I would like to see some treatment of the american doughboys as well because you know many of the british soldiers have had this treatment now it would be nice to see something you know a a war that america was involved in as well that many americans don't even think about today i would like to see something like that uh, in the future so it's good to see that these movies are in the theaters and you know definitely take a watch if, if you have a chance well Thalia, thank you so much for joining us on the show
4: always a pleasure jared
0: and that'll do it for today's episode Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast, brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow.
4: The Daily Signal Podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.